nie die Zeit. Es gab sie auch nie. Es kommt nie die Zeit, in der das Wünschen wieder This yes. is hell. Okie doke. This is not the media. This is hell. And today, this is definitely not the media because if it was the media, we would not be having a guest on the show who would be pointing out that partisans from both political parties have shown a dramatic increase in political violence since the 2016 Trump for President campaign began. And if this was the establishment corporate mainstream media, whether privately owned or a public outlet, you likely would not hear evidence of Republican political violence being driven not only by former President Trump, but a decades-long conservative campaign to stoke partisan animosity, fear, hatred, sexism, racial grievances, and white supremacy, while partisan Democratic Party political violence is the outcome of racial inequality and voter suppression. This radical political partisanism, fueling violence, as we will learn from today's guests, finds its roots in political and personal traits which predispose some people to be more radical than others, especially partisan social identity strength and trade aggression. And these orientations manifest in aggressive political behaviors as well as attitudes. Radical partisanship is fueled by aggressive personality traits, strong partisan attachments, and most of all, the alignment of partisanship with the party's social identities and group attitudes. As we will learn, according to today's guests, the Republican Party's increasingly nativist and white identity means it will soon represent an ethnic minority seeking to maintain political power over a diverse multi-ethnic majority. That loss of social, economic, and political status is sure to drive more partisan conflict, including ethno-partisan violence and authoritarian efforts to retain power against the will of the people. Yeah, it's pretty scary stuff. In a few minutes, we will be speaking with political science scholar Liliana Mason, co-author of Radical American Partisanship, Mapping Violent Hostility, Its Causes, and the Consequences for Democracy, which she co-wrote with Associate Professor of Political Communication, Nathan P. Calmo. Liliana is Associate Research Professor of Political Science at Johns Hopkins University's Stavros Nyakros Foundation Agora Institute and Department of Political Science. She is also the author of Uncivil Agreement, How Politics Became Our Identity. Follow Liliana on Twitter at Lily Mason, Ph.D., I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, live streaming and podcast host. Chuck Mertz producing is Sebastian Vupper, who is back from his honeymoon in Hawaii. Again, congratulations on your marriage. What's new by you? What'd you do your first weekend back from Hawaii? Uh, just basically uh, sat back at home and, uh, you know, just did nothing. Which stared was... at a wall? No, 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 not staring at a wall. Like, not, not like in a depressing, nothing in a depressing kind of way anyway. More in a, oh, okay, so now we can actually, you know, just... Uh... <laughs> be not done be, with all of that. I mean, you know, like just just not be on the road all the time, and right. then also just like trying to get rid of this just annoying ear infection that I'm still carrying around really? with me. Yeah, it's 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 still there. 
It's still there. For people um, who are not Patreon subscribers, uh, you came back from Hawaii after going, what, below sea level and then like 15,000 feet above sea yeah. level in the same day? Yeah. Yikes. Um, yeah, but but then, so I, I tried to, you know, read a bit on, on Saturday, and then um, just as the sun was going down, I was like, oh, this is a really nice reading time, and, la, 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 and, all, and all of a sudden, boom, power outage. Oh, really? Um, you got hit by the power outage? Yeah, well, it's like it's like ten blocks in our neighborhood just lost power. Um, I think because Comet just just switched them off because there were like a bunch of down power lines because there of the storm. There were tons of down power lines. There was a street light uh, on the street right next to me, uh, like right outside my front door. If you uh, like, just west of my my house, right at the corner, a street light just fell across the street. Oh boy! The wind blew over a street light, and I went out there to look at it. It was like uprooted. And it wasn't hit. It was just Holy laying there in the middle of the street. Holy crap. Yeah, it was pretty intense. And so then uh, my girlfriend drove over it, which was a big mistake. <laughs> so, Sebastian, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? Uh, just one second. I, I have issues logging into Facebook because... Uh, you don't like Facebook? I mean, who, like, like who in their right mind likes <laughs> Facebook? Come on. Um, no, more just more just because I, I don't know, like I got I got locked out of it and I tried to lock back in and then was like you know wrong password and I'm like okay cool and then I tried it a couple of times and then and nothing happens um, anyway <clears throat> this week's question from hell 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 is uh, now that Elon Musk has killed Twitter how are you wasting your time instead uh, now that Elon Musk has killed Twitter how are you wasting your time instead you can you leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page if you hate Facebook you can tweet at us if you hate Twitter if you can email it to us at Chuck at this is hell.com but we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing this week's winner as we always do following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth the person with their favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins their choice of This Is Hell merchandise, which you can find at thisishell.com. When you click on support, uh, there's the t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, the coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter hat, or the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century Flash Drive, featuring dozens of interviews from, you guessed it, this century. And all the, you can find all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you can also see all of our merchandise. We have been and always will be completely commercial free. We do not make an, any or take any grant money because who's kidding who? There's not a foundation in the world that would give us money. All of which makes it so we don't even make enough profit to be a not-for-profit, which means I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, live streaming host, podcast host, Chuck Mertz. We got an email from longtime listener Kilter, who uh, listens in London and actually came to our This Is Hell holiday office party a few years ago prior to the pandemic. Kilter uh, contacts us about our conversation with writer and organizer Sudip Bhattacharya, who uh, posted the article Socialism or Suburbia at hardcrackers.com. We ended that interview as we end all of our interviews with our guests with a question from hell, the question we hate to ask, guests hate to answer, or listeners will hate their response. The uh, question from Hell for Suda, uh, who is uh, South Asian, Desi, uh, was uh, Britain's Conservative Party has chosen Liz Truss's 
replacement as Prime Minister after she resigned, ending the shortest run as Prime Minister in Britain's history. The party has chosen Rishi Sunak, who is of South Asian descent. Some have said, despite his politics, this is a great advancement for someone who is Desi. In your opinion, Sudip, how great is it that a person who is South Asian is now the Prime Minister of Britain from the Conservative Party? So to hear Sudip's complete, full, unedited response, you're going to have to go to back and listen to that interview, which can be found at our website, thisishell.com. But Sudeb started his response with, I am so glad you asked me that question. Kilter writes, loved that question, made me laugh. Please make fun of us in the UK more. We deserve your complete and utter contempt. Well then, that's what you'll get. And you are very welcome, Kilter. Uh, this year's holiday office party will happen on the evening of the winter solstice, Wednesday, December 21st, as always, at the bar downstairs from where I'm sitting right now, Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. If you do not have an office, make our party your holiday office party. If you do not find your own or don't find your own holiday office party to be an enjoyable event, then invite the people from your office who you actually want to party with to our holiday office party where you are not under the constant watch of your bosses. If you don't feel like embarrassing yourself at a work function, come embarrass yourself at our holiday office party. If you love holiday office parties and can't get enough of them, then include our party on your list of parties to attend this coming holiday season. Whatever your reason or your feelings about holiday office parties, Come join us for the return of the This Is Hell Holiday Office Party at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood on the evening of the winter solstice, Wednesday, December 21st, beginning at around 6 p.m. And as it is a holiday office party, who knows when it will end. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is Hell, and Sebastian has this week's hangover cure. Uh, this week's hangover cure, 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 is... A sweet lime, pear, and coconut water drink with a side of cheese, tomatoes, and cucumber. Okay. Sounds, sounds very British. It does. Uh, last week, the absolutely dreadful website, ladbible.com. <laughs> Ladbible. Oh, God. Ran a story. Like, this the, the only thing that's worse than that is like Barstool Sports or something. Exactly. Ah. Exactly. Anyway, ran a story with the headline, Scientists say they've discovered the ideal hangover cure color me skeptic. Uh, writer Tom Wood reports, apparently the real choice for a thick head is a special <laughs> drink made from coconut water, lime, and pear. Oh, and a small meal of cheese, tomatoes, and cucumber. This vital research was performed by a team at the Institute of Chemical Technology in Mumbai, India, back in 2019. A team led by Dr. Shraddha Srinivasan found that this combination of food and drink gives you a good chance of lessening your hangover quickly. The study said a beverage made from a blend of sweet lime, pear, and coconut water could be used to overcome hangover. Uh, the consumption of this beverage with cheese, cucumber, and tomatoes may further alleviate the hangover symptoms. Coffee turned out to be the worst thing for the job, with the research finding that it reduced the activity of aldehyde dehydrogen dehydrogenase dehydrogen how do you pronounce this in english yeah i don't know dehydrogenase yeah a l d h uh which helps break down the acetaldehyde. acetaldehyde there you go 
I'm, I'm proud of myself that I have less issues with the Indian name than I do with uh, the, the chemi- <laughs> yeah. chemical stuff that causes hangovers. The research says coffee decreased the ALDH activity by a large magnitude, hence it is not advisable to consume coffee post-alcohol intake as it might lead to acetaldehyde buildup resulting in prolonged hangover. <laughs> and that makes this week's hangover cure a sweet lime pear and coconut water drink with a side of cheese, tomatoes, and cucumber. And uh, definitely not coffee. Tell us what you think. Give us your constructive and or destructive criticism. Send us your guest or topic suggestions or anything you would like to share with us via email, Facebook, Twitter. And if you do, we will likely read whatever you have sent us on air. If we have your suggested guest or topic on the show, we will thank you personally during that conversation. And thanks to Carolyn S. who contacted us writing, Hey Chuck, I recommend Alec Karansakis as a guest. He writes brilliantly to expose fallacies embedded in mainstream journalism and culture that perpetuate oppression and racism. So we contacted Alec, who is a civil rights lawyer and former public defender. Alec is, Alec is also the founder and direct, executive director of the Civil Rights Corps, which is, according to their social media account, engages in uh, innovative, systemic civil rights litigation aimed at resensitizing our culture to the injustices of the contemporary American legal system. So we will be speaking with Alec about his latest writing, a warning to journalists about elite academia. Two Harvard professors propose the greatest expansion of the police bureaucracy in Western history, which you can find posted at Alec's Copaganda newsletter at equalityalec.substack.com. So coming up on the show, our talk with Liliana Mason on uh, radical partisanism in the United States and the violence it can cause. We will tell you what happened on our most recent episode of This Is Hell on Patreon, exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. Producer Sebastian Vupper, who has a Ph.D. in history, returns with another installment of The Past Inside the Present, where he offers the historical context we need to best understand where we find ourselves today. And we'll tell you who are the rest of this week's guests. Your eyewitness to grief, this is hell as Election Day is this week. Political violence is ratcheting up, which happens regularly in the U.S., but it is getting much worse than it has been for a very, very long time. That political violence is sparked by the same thing that historically has led to political violence in the United States, namely issues around race from white supremacy to racial equality. Here to help us have a better understanding of the causes and history of radical partisanism in the United States, which can lead to potentially deadly violence, political science scholar Liliana Mason is co-author of Radical American Partisanship, Mapping Violent Hostility, Its Causes, and the Consequences for Democracy, which he co-wrote with Associate Professor of Political Communication, Nathan P. Calmo. Welcome to This Is Hell, Ileana. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Uh, this book is really fascinating because it made me think about all sorts of different ideas, even especially like social identity, which I never really considered as much when it comes to this kind of partisanship that we're seeing today. You write... Why was it so easy to stoke an insurrection by thousands of Americans on January 6th, many of whom carried their nation's flag as they desecrated its capital and hunted its elected leaders? 
How are self-professed patriots driven to violent sedition? Trump's incitement is the obvious immediate answer, but that raises more questions. Part of the deeper answer is that the bases of each party are divided into nearly warring factions with radically opposed visions for America. After decades of realignment and consolidation, core groups in each party now pull forcefully in opposite directions. A very common criticism that we hear of the two major parties, Liliana, is that there is no difference between the two parties, that substantively they are one and the same. This is often based on the perception that both parties share the same views on foreign policy, as was exemplified in the Bush v. Gore debate during the presidential campaign in 2000 when host Jim Lehrer asked them if there was anything the two candidates did not agree on when it came to foreign policy. Others argue that the two parties both embrace neoliberalism as an overarching economic policy and the politics that go along with it. Has radical American partisanship, as you and Nathan call it, changed that equation? Were the two parties far more in alignment in the past, but radicalization of both has led them to have major differences, whether either party's establishment wanted it or not? Or were uh, were those similarities in the past, in your opinion, were they exaggerated? So basically what has happened is that the parties themselves have changed. Um, so the, the the makeup of the parties now is different than it was, for example, in this in the 1970s and 80s and even 90s. And that's partly because the the civil rights legislation of the 1960s uh, really uh, turned away a whole bunch of Southern white Democrats who used to make up a core element of the Democratic Party. And and they actually were, you know, they 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 hated Republicans so much because of memories of the Civil War um, that they that they, it took a generation essentially for that group of people to become uh, Republicans. And, and so, so this gradual over decades, people starting to vote for Republican candidates and then ultimately their kids could identify as Republicans. But and during that during that process, another thing that happened is that the uh, the, the the Christian right became politically active and saw an opportunity in the Republican Party and the Republican Party saw an opportunity in this huge group of you know mobilized voters that meet every week and you and do what you tell them to do. Um, and so also started catering to them. So what the end product was uh, is where we are now, where the Republican Party is effectively that vastly majority white, um, largely evangelical, uh, at this point, much more rural, uh, culturally conservative, conservative in every way, um, much higher levels of racial resentment than Democrats, um, much higher levels of of hostile sexism than Democrats. And uh, these are just empiri- like empirically asking people in a survey what their attitudes are. They just tell us this. Um, and so so, yeah, so the Republican Party is really has become a force sort of pulling us backward toward less equality. And and that has left the Democratic Party as the place for everybody else who doesn't want to go that way. Um, and so for the Democrats, it's actually a much harder. It's a harder coalition to keep together because it's not all one. You know, it's not it's not unified. If you pick two random Democrats um, out of the electorate, the chance of the same race and religion is pretty small. But if you pick two Republicans out of the electorate, the chance they're the same race and religion is very high. So. So we just have like two qualitatively different parties. And and the 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 dangerous part of that right now is that the Republican Party is very much unified in attempting to go back to a time when we had less racial equality, less gender equality. Um, and to do that, you know, basically by by abandoning the norms and rules of democracy. 
So how much of this radical partisanship in American politics is a function of this being a two-party system? I mean, it sounds like, you know, we have a binary choice. We have, you can choose from Republicans or Democrats. So is this a function of a two-party system or even in a multi-party system? Will we see the same kind of radical partisanism? It's definitely made worse by the fact that it's a two-party system. Um, and p- people have started looking into, um, you know, this is, we, we call this affective polarization, which is just our, the political science term for um, Democrats and Republicans hating each other. Uh, and people in, in Europe have actually started measuring this with their own parties and have found that in multi-party systems, these, the level of hatred is generally lower because the the enemy isn't as clear. You know, they have to form coalition governments. Sometimes they're on the same team, sometimes they're not. Um, and so the if you know if there if there is a number of parties, if there are a number of parties, it's it's less clear who the who the bad guy is. That's the first thing. Second thing is that um if we had multiple parties or the opportunity for multiple parties, which currently our institutional rules basically don't allow, um if we had multiple parties, then the the kind of core of the of the you know what what we think of as like MAGA Republicans, the core of the Trump base within the Republican Party, is only like half of the of the Republican voters, um, and so that that core could be its own in Europe. It would be its own extremist right wing fringe party, and it would get you know twenty percent of the votes in every election. So it would sit there with twenty percent of the seats in. Uh, in Congress and and probably make some trouble and make some noise, but would never be in charge of all of the levers of power for the whole country. So what does it reveal to you about the United States and its history when this radical partisanism seems to mostly be fueled by positions on racial equality or racial inequality? What does it say about the U.S. when it seems like all this partisanism is all around race? Well, so I think it's a, it's about it's it's about equality in general, um, right? Like the, anything that that seems to um, reduce the privilege of Christian white men seems to be a part of this, and so it, it's also you know sexuality, gender equality, all of these all of these things that also make people white white Christian men very uncomfortable. Um, so the part of the danger here is that the last time that the parties were really divided on issues of race was basically the civil war. And and so this is something that we don't really know how to deal with as a country. We're not very good at having conversations about racial equality in a calm and reasonable way. Um, We're not very good at talking about uh, racism or racial attitudes or systemic inequality or American history even, uh, as we sometimes see. Uh, in a way that everyone feels comfortable with. And so um, the the main problem, we've always had that divide. I mean, we've always there's always been this tension in the United States. But the the reason that it's exploding so much right now is that the parties themselves are ha- are sort of taking sides in that argument. And so, you know, it used to be that there were, you know, plenty of white supremacists in both the Democratic and Republican parties. And now most of the white supremacists have have gathered together in the Republican Party. Not that all Republicans are white supremacists, but that most of the white supremacists are joining the Republican Party and they don't feel comfortable in the Democratic Party. And so the 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 argument has has really become between our parties. And that creates um, some really dangerous uh, power dynamics because we vote about which party is the winner and we don't vote 
for good reason about which racial group is the winner or which religion is the winner. Um, but we do vote about which for which party is the winner. And that, you know, basically allows people to feel like, you know, if their if their race and their religion is tied to their partisanship, then when they're voting, they're voting for all of these different identities and parts of themselves um, and and trying to make sure that their, you know, their social group uh, is is winning the election. And and that creates these bad incentives where we're not even talking about, you know, tax policies or the role of government in um, in healthcare, or what you know, an actual an actual like policy where we're talking about you know entire social groups and and who wins and who loses and people don't have a easy time compromising on that. Whether by Democrats or Republicans, how much does the political rhetoric of fear influence that partisanism and that violence? Does both the fear of a changing world and a fear of the status quo do they both lead to violence? Uh, they don't always lead to violence, and and basically among among white Democrats and Republicans thinking about a changing um, you know sort of ethnic makeup of the of the United States tends to make them more conservative on a bunch of different issues that are unrelated to race, but but among Republicans they're sort of the average racial attitudes in the Republican Party is already quite uh, quite high on racial resentment, and so. Um, you know, the thing that that turns the these sort of thoughts into violence is not just having the conversation, but but feeling like something is being stolen. Um, and this is really the rhetoric of the, you know, Trump of the Trump base right now is, you know, declaring declaring things have been stolen from them even before they have been stolen from them, presumably. Right. Um, and that's not just about elections. That's about status in general and it's also about relative status so it's not that it's not that you know white christian men are losing status in society it's that other groups are gaining status and so the gap between them is getting smaller so that's a relative change it's not an actual change right and and so the the sense that there is less uh less high status or the or the status differences are are shrinking feels like loss feels like an attack and when you feel attacked, that's when you start to turn to turn to violence or even just think about violence. You and Nathan also write that there is no truthful way to write a book on partisan violence today that pretends both parties are equally culpable, that their actions are morally equivalent, or that they pose equal dangers to the democratic project. Why do you see the right as more culpable when, from the right's perspective, it's the left whose demands for change are the truly radical project? Yeah, that's what the, right. That's the that's the rhetoric from the right. Um, what's happening on the right is that people are uh, abandoning long held principles of democracy. There is uh, you know faith in elections. There is a peaceful transfer of power. Everyone has equal access to the ballot. Um, all of these things are not partisan. They are about what democracy is and. The right is increasingly abandoning those those values and norms, um, and and by advocating even you know even just joking about violence against someone like Paul Pelosi, uh, rather than expressing you know horror and and solidarity, um, the the rhetoric of the right is is creating opportunities for more people to engage in violence, and creating uh, these sort of you know not just conspiracy theories but entire worldviews 
where where everything is a lie and everything is being stolen and nothing is really true except what the leader tells you right it's impossible to know the truth unless you're getting it from the person you know from the person in charge and that's actually autocracy uh that's not democracy at all uh so the the difference in in the types of of extremisms right if you want to call the left you know pushing for 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 radical equality uh, an extremism, then you know the 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 left is at is actually asking for more inclusion, where the right is ask, is asking for more exclusion, and that's a very just different danger to to a democratic nation that that you know wants to have a peaceful transfer of power and wants to allow their citizens to participate in democracy the way that they're supposed to be able to. You also write that other extreme views like dehumanizing partisan opponents, labeling them evil and seeing them as a national threat are much more widely held, sometimes by large majorities. How often do people engage in extremism without recognizing that they are? Can those engaging in dehumanization not recognizing that they are uh, engaging in extremism and dehumanization of others? Because I cannot count the number of times over my lifetime that I have heard insults either by Republicans or Democrats that are, you know, the other side, they're all idiots or they're all evil or some other dehumanizing comment. Can extremism happen without recognition? And does that unrecognized extremism still lead to spreading extremism? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how we say these things without recognizing what we're, I mean, I think that we can, you know, we're saying that because we, we believe them presumably. Um, and all of our research is, is online surveys of, you know, national samples of Americans who we ask them explicitly, um, you know, to what extent is, uh, you know, are people in the other party a serious threat to the United States? They're just, they're not just worse for politics. They're downright evil, agree or disagree. Um, many people in the other party lack the traits to be considered fully human. They behave like animals, agree or disagree. And and the the thing is that we we really see large numbers of people willing to agree with these with these uh, survey survey items, uh, and so you know up up to now the you know considering the other party to be evil, we started asking this question in 2017, uh, and it was about 40 percent of Democrats and Republicans uh, said that people in the other party were not just wrong for politics; they were downright evil. By May of this year, it's now over 50% of Democrats and getting close to 70% of Republicans that are saying that. Uh, so not only are we seeing, you know, surprising numbers of people agreeing with these really, really vilifying and dehumanizing um, ideas, but it does seem to be increasing. The, the dehumanization question is so explicit that we actually didn't think that people would um, would agree with it to say that people in the other, other party behave like animals. And in 2017, it was it was about 20 percent of Republicans and and less and slightly less than that of, of Democrats willing to agree with that with that statement. Um, but by May of this year, it's it's 30 percent of Democrats and almost 40 percent of Republicans agreeing with that. So I don't know about whether or not people don't realize what they're saying when they answer that question. Um, I think it's that you know, I really like doing survey research because you, people are anonymous and online and they can just tell us what they really think. And and so these are ideas that, you know, if we have, you know, 40 percent of people thinking that that part that people in the other party are, should be treated like animals, um, that's something really bad that's that's going on. And it's rather than 
rather than us reminding people that that's not a good opinion, I think it's more important to remind people that holding that opinion creates a blockage in our ability to even have the the conversations that we need to have for a fun for a democracy to function. And the not only do those types of attitudes um, often in other contexts and other countries lead to mass violence, so that they tend ideas like this vilification and dehumanization. These tend to lead to, um, you know, when there is a genocide or, or mass violence event between groups, uh, these types of attitudes tend to be there before that happens, before that violence occurs, because it allows the violence to seem morally palatable for people. Like they can engage in violence and still be a morally good person because they're fighting this this battle against non-human evil people so, um, or not people. So does it work as a political strategy? Because I, I, when I was reading your book, I couldn't help but thinking, whether violent political rhetoric is more of a threat to ordinary citizens than it is to politicians, that politicians maybe engage in violent political rhetoric because it's not as dangerous for them as it is for ordinary citizens. Do politicians benefit from violent rhetoric while ordinary citizens are faced with relatively more threats to their safety and security than the politicians who engage in violent uh, speech who win elections through violent speech? Yeah, the I mean, what they're what they're really benefiting from is anger, um, and and this is you know in the study of political psychology, which is what I'm I'm trained in, we we look into emotions a lot and what do emotions do for people, and anger is a really important emotion for politics um, because it actually gets people to um, to become active and to not think about what they're doing very much. Um, just sort of act aggressively and and reflexively, and and so the, the the by making people and this is something that you you can see on the right a lot, especially with you know these sort of these brief trends of of stoking anger at you know Sesame Street or Dr. Seuss or whatever, you know they sort of go away quickly, but they create this little burst of anger in the moment. Um, what it does is it just keeps people paying attention to the thing that they feel is threatening them. And not paying attention to to you know either you know democracy itself or or actual policies that can that might help them better their own lives and by by keeping people focused on things that make them angry and aggrieved um, they actually can can avoid <laughs> I mean specifically on the right the, the the policy positions of the right at this point are not popular in the United States they are. You know, the vast majority of Americans don't want abortion to be banned. They don't like tax cuts for billionaires. Um, and even even a majority of Republicans don't like that. And and so they it's not in their interest to talk about, you know, uh, pocketbook issues. It's not in their, in their interest to talk about real policies that that, you know, could potentially help or harm Americans. Those types of conversations are losing conversations for Republicans. And, and so what they want to do is keep everyone's attention on who is attacking you, right? Why are you being, being you know, you know, basically they are coming for you. And, and which Tucker Carlson says all the time on his show. Um, and the, the idea is basically just keep them distracted, keep them angry. They'll participate in politics. They'll come out and vote for you. They might actually get violent also, um, but at, but that doesn't matter as much as winning. So let's just make sure that they're angry and we're not going to really worry about the downstream consequences of of what ends up being, you know, violent behavior by people who who might otherwise not have engaged in that type of behavior for political means. Um, 
they, you know, they, they might've been aggressive in other ways, but, but this is, it, it encourages violence, but I think that violence is not necessarily the goal. It's just the anger to get people up and going. So if culture wars are a distraction, why are they a distraction? Why do, why are we so easily distracted by culture wars instead of the real issues that affect our daily lives? Yeah, so this goes back to um, this theory uh, called social identity theory that was developed in the 1960s and 70s by uh, a social psychologist named Henri Tajfel. And he is actually a quite interesting story. He spent six years in a Nazi prison camp um, and was going to, he was originally planning on getting his PhD in chemistry, but when he emerged from the prison camp, he decided to study intergroup conflict. And, uh, and so then he developed this theory of kind of how identities work and why, not necessarily why they work, but how powerful they are. Uh, and and the most important um, experiment that he did, which has been repeated hundreds of times, was basically to create a fake identity, like a, a temporary, weak, meaningless identity for people in the lab. And then, uh, so he, you know, had people look at a bunch of dots and then said, and, you know, estimate the number of dots. And when they told him their, their answer, he said, oh, okay, well, you're an overestimator. Some people are under underestimators, but you're an overestimator. And, and then went through a whole bunch of other things. Um, and what, what he expected was that by the time they got to the end of the, of the, of the interview, um, he was going to give them an allocation, money allocation task, basically saying, uh, let's get like, you know, you can give money, choose how much money other people in the experiment are getting. Uh, you can either have everyone overestimators and underestimators get $5 or the overestimators, your group can get $4, but the underestimators get three. And, um, and what they expected was that with this very weak identity that, that, that they just created and that no one was ever going to even, it was never going to impact their lives in any way. They expected that there would be no intergroup prejudice and that people would always choose the greater good at this point. And then they were going to add conditions of conflict to see like, okay, at what point does prejudice emerge? But they found it even in this very, very weak group identity. They kept finding that people prefer to essentially lose money for their side in order to have status over the other guys. So they would choose the condition in which they get $1 less but they're but the other group gets two dollars less, so they have status. They're paying a dollar for status, and they changed the the names of the groups. They changed the amounts of money. They did this dozens and other people have done this experiment. It always works out the same. People are willing to sacrifice the greater good for their own sense of their group status and victory, and so that is what is working inside the human psyche at all times. This is very powerful. It's very deeply rooted. It's something that is really hard to get rid of. And, and also it works at like almost at an implicit level. So we, you know, this happens not necessarily consciously. We are just, all of our, all of our instincts are to, are to protect the status of our group. So we, it's hard to talk people out of it. It's hard to, to convince people that they do it. Um, and that and it's actually really it makes it difficult for any of these kind of government based conversations like how much money should we allocate to this particular thing that's a rational conversation but if we give money to this one group but not to this other group then then identity is involved and we're not going to be rational about it at all and it becomes really difficult to have rational conversations when identity is brought into the mix and that's part of the reason why all these threats and and sort of culture war, war ideas are are so successful because they're tapping into this really deep motivation 
in human psychology, whether or not they've read Tajvel, they probably haven't, but they know, right? It, it's very clear that it works to tap into identity-based concerns rather than economic concerns because people are willing to sacrifice their own economic well-being for, for status. So you write that your findings reinforce the centrality of group status at the core of partisan hostility today. If this is about status, what is the impact of disrespectful rhetoric in fueling partisan hostility? For instance, outside of the mainstream TV news outlets, how much does insulting and dismissive, even condescending partisan humor during entertainment programming, including monologues on late night talk shows, lead to partisan hostility? Because... Donald Trump uh, chronicler David K. Johnson has been on our show several times, and he warned us And back in uh, right when uh, uh, Trump was elected, I believe it was in December of 2016, he warned us about the impact of that humor on partisanism when he was on our, our show. Yeah, it was back in 2016. So what is the impact of disrespectful rhetoric on any platform from news to entertainment or even everyday conversation in fueling partisan hostility? Right. It's 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 actually really difficult to know uh, the effects of these things um, sort of across parties, because uh, there's a great book by um, uh, Dana Young called Irony and Outrage, where she looks at the difference between um, basically, you know, people on the left tend to use humor and irony to talk about the political opponents and people on the right tend to use outrage. Um and and kind of uh you know c- cynicism um and it's and it's you know she goes into a political psycho- psychological explanation of this uh the you know the basically that the you know conservatism in general creates this sort of like you know is is related to a dangerous world a view of the world as dangerous and people on the left tend to think of the world as safe and ready to explore and so that they're more comfortable with humor um, especially irony, because it sort of leaves the answer to the joke unsaid. Um, anyway, long story short, it's it's actually very different types of 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 language that Democrats and Republicans tend to use when talking about each other. Um, and it's unclear that the that the irony type of uh, type of sort of condescension. Um, and disparage disparagement is has the same effect on behavior as the outrage type disparagement. Um, and and, I, and actually, I mean, it's, an, it's a good question. I haven't actually seen any evidence that, um, or any, any, any actual research into whether those two types of, um, those two types of language uh, motivate different types of behavior. So I think that's an open question. Uh, but it is really interesting that, that it does seem to be like a systematically different type of, of uh, language that's being used on the left and on the right. Um, and and certainly it can it can you know potentially lead to more you know vitriol even more you know potentially dehumanization senses of threat, um, but but in general you know the uh, the more you the more you think of people in the other party as a threat to you, then the more you're likely to engage in in violence. So. Um, so it really is more about whether or not you're framing the people in the other party as a threat rather than whether you're just, you know, you're making fun of them. We are speaking with political science scholar Liliana Mason, co-author of Radical American Partisanship, 
Mapping Violent Hostility, Its Causes, and the Consequences for Democracy, which she co-wrote with Nathan P. Calmo. You write that political and personal traits predispose some people to be more radical than others, especially partisan social identity, strength, and trade aggression. And these orientations manifest in aggressive political behaviors as well as attitudes. So does, I know this is kind of a chicken laying the egg kind of question, what came first, the chicken or the egg, but does partisanship lead to violence or does a violent character lead to partisanism? Um, they, so they interact, uh, right, right? They fuel each other. Uh, so the so basically what we found was that the best way to predict people approving of violence, political violence, um, is by how strongly they identify with their party and how aggressive they are in everyday life. So this is, the aggressiveness is unrelated to politics. It's just like the questions that we use to measure it are things like, have you ever hit someone? Do you get angry very easily? Things that are not explicitly political in any way. Uh, and it really does, it does seem like both of those things are required. So if you're, if you're a strong, if you're strongly identified with your party, but you're, you're not aggressive at all, then you don't really have very strong approval of violence. Um, and so you kind of need both of them at the same time. And that's where I think that, uh, you know, sort of the, prolif the pr proliferation of these attitudes becomes kind of becomes dangerous um, because just simply approving of violence is uh, is is not is anti-democratic norms. Right. It's not what we're supposed to do in a democracy. And to, to the extent that more and more people are approving of violence, the the norm is being broken in more and more places, which means that those aggressive people that are already out there are more likely to encounter approval of violence and encouragement of, of violent behavior. Um, and, you know, ideally what we want to do is, is to discourage aggressive people from engaging in violence. Um, but if if there are more strong partisans out there and they're talking a lot and they're talking more about violence, then those aggressive folks uh, may, be, may be inspired to act. So what happens to, to democracy then when we associate elections with increased violence and electoral campaigns as provoking that violence? It's, it's dangerous. <laughs> it's very dangerous. Uh, it's, you know, the, I'm, you know, worried about the election. Um, the, hopefully there will not be violence, you know, on election day, but, I, but I, but, you know, as I was saying before, these questions of status really get people revved up. And my, the, I think the likely outcome of these elections is that we're going to see hundreds of election uh, contested election outcomes across the country because there are thousands of elections going on, on on election day. It's you know it's not just the the U.S. Congress. It's it's also uh, state level races, uh, governors, but also you know election officials in the state are are being ele uh, elected for next time. Um, you know state attorneys general. Uh, you know there's literally thousands of, of elections that are happening, and some of them are really important for the outcome of the 2024 election. If we have an election denier in, you know, in the position of certifying the the twenty twenty four election, um, that's a really important that's a really important thing to to know about. And if if even those sort of more localized races are contested, they will be contested probably pretty viciously. So my my concern here is that you know this 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 sort of need for status. Is going is sort of filtering all the way down to these even le local level races where everyone is going to get involved, um, and people will be really upset about the outcomes. 
And that's the opposite of a peaceful transfer of power. I mean, the a democracy requires losers consent. And one of the things that Trump has been doing for the last two years is refusing to concede. And, and so the, 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 um, the rejection of that norm is basically an allowance of, of the breakdown of that norm. So, you know, I think we all need to be really careful and pay pay a lot of attention to, you know, seeing people talk about violence, seeing people advocate for violence. Um, you know, it's it, it's a, it is a social norm not to not to have not to engage in violence. And we all have responsibilities in our social circles to uh, remind our friends and neighbors and family members that it's that's not what we do in democracies. Uh, if, as because our leaders aren't doing a great job of of spreading that message around, but um, you know, I I do think that this you know this week will be maybe pretty chaotic, and and twenty twenty four will be even more so. Um, and so it's just sort of a question of, you know, we've got a lot of people right now saying that our elections can never be be valid if they lose. Uh, that's not a that's not you can't you can't run a democracy with people who are saying that going into the election. And and so ultimately, those people need to be defeated, um, you know, electorally, democratically. And it's unclear whether that's actually going to happen. Um, so, yeah, so things I think are really up in the air. It's uh, it's a it's a really volatile, dangerous time for American democracy. You also write about moral disengagement, which doesn't sound as bad as violence. So I don't mind if somebody wants to get morally disengaged. So in your you write that in our surveys and experiments, we found a small but growing number of partisans supporting political violence and that a much larger fraction of partisans endorses several extreme forms of moral disengagement. So what do you mean by moral disengagement? What might that disengagement look like after this week's election day? Can that disengagement actually lead to or cause violence? Yeah, so moral disengagement is um, the attitudes I was I was talking about before, the 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 vilifying, thinking the other party's a threat, thinking that they're not human. Those are the attitudes that allow us to get basically remove ourselves morally from any violent conflict that might occur because we are fighting an evil, threatening uh, enemy who isn't even really human. It, if, if that's who we're fighting, then we can harm them and not feel that we are morally responsible, or even we might even feel that we are morally um, virtuous because we are eliminating the, the inhuman evil threat. And that is, you know, we, we, we will certainly see more of that, I think, going forward. There has been an upward trend in the last five years of people believing those things. And during elections, that tensions get much higher. And so those types of beliefs are more widely spread. Uh, the, the outcomes of those beliefs depend on a couple of things. One is aggressiveness. So people who are the most aggressive and the most morally disengaged are the ones who are really likely to engage in violence. Um, but it's also the people who are, uh, again, you know, really motivated on behalf of their side to win, uh, who if they if they really think of the other side as evil and subhuman, um, it, you know, they can they can, for example, storm the Capitol and believe that they're patriots. Right. Like it's it's violence on behalf of what they think is a morally good cause. And uh and that's, you know, that's ultimately where, where most of, of, of political violence is going to come from. It's going to come from someone who doesn't think that they're harming democracy, but in fact, defending it. And most of the people who have 
engaged in political violence have used that excuse that, you know, I'm defending democracy because the people, uh, you know, because the liberals are so evil, they can't ever get back in power. Uh, they need to know the truth. You know, the guy who attacked Paul Pelosi was saying Nancy Pelosi needs to know the truth or I'm going to break her kneecaps. But he he thought he was doing something virtuous. Um, so that's, I think, where the moral disengagement becomes really disturbing is when we end up with people um, engaging in violence for reasons that they believe are good. You it's, hard to, it's hard to discourage them. Yeah, I would say. Uh, you also write that Trump's 2016 campaign in his presidency certainly added fuel to the fire by stoking Republican animus against Democrats and against minority groups. But he only accelerated and intensified growing tendencies among Republicans that other leaders had stoked for decades. What do we miss in our understanding of the reasons behind the increase in political violence since Trump's presidential campaign when we do not recognize the impact of decades of growing animus by the Republican Party against Democrats? Right. Uh, Trump was the was the last, you know, was the last straw um, on a big pile of straw. Uh, the basically, you know, we think of um, the kind of the progress towards in this in this case, racial equality in the United States has always been one of backlash, right? Two steps forward, one step back. And and, you know, so the the Civil War, uh, you know, technically freed freed enslaved people. They formed during Reconstruction. They formed um, thriving communities, uh, which you know ran you know their own banks and businesses and and hospitals and all this and all these things. And the more successful they were, the more likely they were to be bombed by ter- by white terrorists um, and destroyed. And so ultimately, Reconstruction ended, and and that 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 progress was abandoned for seventy years of Jim Crow in the South. Um, we then saw civil rights legislation in the 1960s, uh, which made a lot of progress, at least legally, uh, for protecting the vote of, of Black Americans. And then we saw the long Southern strategy uh, of the Republican Party basically taking advantage of those disaffected white Southern Democrats uh, and and speaking in in sort of implicit racial um, grievance tones to to those white Southern Democrats. Uh, which gradually became more and more explicit. And then we had the first black president and then we had Trump. So um, every every time there is racial progress in the US and you can look at even, even just the 2020 um, George Floyd protest, summer of George Floyd protests, every time that there is racial progress, there's always a somewhat, at least somewhat violent backlash to that progress. Um, and and you can also see that even, you know, in, in terms of gender equality in the Me Too movement, right? Like both, the Black Lives Matter and the Me Too movements um, unearthed secret secret behaviors that were happening um, by powerful people that that were really harming entire groups of Americans, and and so they just told those secrets to everyone, and that and that created awareness and and in some compassion, um, but it also created a backlash against anyone being able to tell those secrets. And, and so that's really what we're, a lot of what we're seeing right now from the right is, is this pushback against any type of, any type of uh, progress toward equality that we've seen. And it's, it, in that sense, it's actually not surprising, right? It's like every time we make progress, we, we see this backlash. And so, you know, to, to, to some extent, we're kind of just like in the normal thing right now. The problem is that it's organized along party lines. 
at this point. And that means that our elections are implicated in this argument, which they haven't been in the past. So they weren't, they were in 1860, um, but they haven't been since then. So that's where it's that's where it's really scary. But but this is a conversation we've been having as a country for a really long time. And uh, and we we haven't been very good at it. Just a few more questions for you. You write that unlike many political observers, we recognize that party polarization isn't inherently bad. In fact, maintaining and exacerbating polarization is essential for a small d Democratic Party when it faces an authoritarian party. Thus, the valueless canard of polarization doesn't diagnose the problem, it hides the problem. How does polarization hide the problem and what is the problem it's hiding? Yeah, um, I mean, you arguably I wrote my first book on polarization and now I've turned on the term, but the the idea of polarization is, it suggests that there's there are two poles that are equally bad uh, and equally damaging to democracy. And that's not true. Um, the It's a very useful term for media to use because it doesn't blame anyone. It doesn't take sides. It's like talking about politics without any political content at all. Just saying like, oh, polarization is the problem. Everyone is to blame um, without without actually looking at like, where is the actual danger here? So the, you know, the, the term itself is is a really useful way of uh, of remaining politically neutral um, but but ultimately not not helping democracy. And I and I've recently I've just come to say that like we can, you know, in in decades past, we were able to be politically neutral and pro-democracy. And and as of the Trump administration, I found that much more difficult to do. Even in my teaching, I found it difficult with you know the the same the same lectures that I had given years, years, years before um sounded partisan to my students when when I gave them during the Trump era. And and they they hadn't sounded partisan to my students before Trump, but things like the importance of a free press, right? Like things that that Trump had been attacking, um, were basic basic tenets of democracy, but but had become political or partisan. So I think that the the term polarization really is is a, is a really convenient way of of not talking about actual threats to democracy and remaining politically neutral which it really does seem like most of our media, most of our news media have really committed to the politically neutral part rather than the pro-democracy part at this point. And one of the things we wanted to say in that book was we are, we are first of all going to explain that this is, you can't have both right now. And, uh, and we're choosing pro-democracy. So this is explicitly like we're, this is, we're going to tell you what we're going to do. We think, we think democracy is more important than political neutrality at this point in time. And uh, and we think that it should be more important to to, you know, even like regular mainstream media reporters uh, and journalists. And some of them agree with us, but um, but some don't. Many don't. And so it's it's really just a way of us to sort of put our, you know, basically to plant our flag and say this is we've decided to take the side of democracy. We're not going to pretend that everything is um, is both sides and and uh, and both 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 Democrats and Republicans are equally to blame for threats to democracy right now. Is the only way to end the vilification and dehumanization of political opponents in the United States to end the conflict between racists and anti-racists? And is the only way that can be done ending racism? <laughs> uh, that's a big job. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if anyone is uh, is ready to to claim that they know what to do to do that. Um, I mean, ultimately, you know, ultimately, what what the the position that I've taken is that you know a, a truly multi ethnic democracy 
where everyone is equally protected under the law, everyone has equal right to vote, everyone's vote counts. That is the desirable final place. And so to the extent that people are opposing that kind of democracy, um, ultimately, you know, there was a time when then when you know explicit racism was um frowned upon socially. <laughs> and and Trump really weakened those norms um around around kind of social sanctions for for white supremacist uh, talking points. And and so, you know, ideally we could get back at least to a place where we haven't abolished racism altogether, but it's it's understood that it is not consistent with with democracy um, and it's not consistent with a, a functioning society. And and so, you know, the, the the alternative is to go back to something like Jim Crow, which is which is not um, not certainly what I think we should be doing. And, and and making it explicit that we're either you know we're either moving forward towards a more a more equal more just democracy or we're going to move backwards and and you know people are you know either deciding whether that's a, that's the decision that they're making when they're voting or they're trying to pretend that that's not what the election is about and ignoring the fact that, that that seems to be where the parties are taking us, whether whether we want to be going that in that, you know, having that conversation or not, the parties seem to be taking us there. One last question for you, Liliana. We have been speaking with political science scholar Liliana Mason, co-author of Radical American Partisanship. Liliana is associate research professor of political science at Johns Hopkins University. She is also the author of Uncivil Agreement, How Politics Became Our Identity. You can follow Liliana on Twitter at Lily Mason, PhD. One last question for you, and as we do with all of our guests, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response, whether it is violence by those who demand equality or violence by those who insist upon white supremacy. Is violence always an attack on democracy? After all, with violence, one side is being suppressed or subdued through physical intimidation. So is violence of any kind anti-democratic? No, um, you know, the, there are, the, for example, the Revolutionary War, right, was um, everyone pretty much agrees that the, the violence that we, that people engaged in during the Revolutionary War was, was, was good for American democracy. Uh, the, um, you know, the Civil War fighting to, to keep the Union together could argue that that violence was was good for the United States of America and, and our and our democracy as a whole. So there are there are certainly, you know, times when violence is required to to enforce democracy or reinforce democracy. Uh, you know, during Reconstruction, the, the U.S. government sent federal troops down to the south in order to protect these communities um, that were being formed by by recently enslaved people to protect them by force, right? They were armed. They were armed forces um, that were the only way that these communities could form was if they had they had federal protection um, and, and enforced federal protection. So it is not always uh, anti democracy, um, but it's also important to know to think to remember that there are different kinds of violence. And when we ask people about their approval of violence, um, there are part of, there are party differences in the types of violence that people approve of. And so of the people that approve of violence, um, Democrats are much more likely to say that they they think that that um, property damage is is ex much more acceptable than Republicans do. And Republicans are more willing to get into fistfights to 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 um, 
protect democracy or to work towards their political goals. So there, there are different types of violence as well. I think the, the main thing to remember is that depending on, um, you know, whether the state is, is enforcing, you know, increased representation and, and democracy, or whether it is removing representation and democracy, uh, determines whether or not violence is helping or harming democracy, right? It's, it's much more about what is the end goal and, and what do we need to get there? Um, and so, you know, having the having the the multi-ethnic equal protection for all uh, democracy in your mind helps explain which types of violence are moving us towards that and which types of violence are moving us away from that. Uh, but in general, um, the problem with violence is that it tends to beget more violence. And so we can very easily end up in a, a vicious cycle where a violent event occurs, people approve more of violence after that, which we did find in our book, and then more violence occurs and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so, the, so the real danger is that once violence starts, it's very, very hard to stop. So we, you know, basically it is, it is for, for protecting democracy, it should be the very last resort because it can very easily and quickly get out of control. Liliana, thank you so much for being on the show today. Liliana Mason is co-author of Radical American Partisanship. You should definitely check out her book. It is going to be timely for many years to come, unfortunately. You can follow Liliana on Twitter at Lily Mason PhD. Thank you so much for being on our show. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Take care. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell of what you just heard from Liliana on the dramatic increase in U.S. radical political partisanism leading to violence, potentially deadly violence, you know, like tomorrow, if that scared the hell out of you as it did me or made you realize that, yes, this really is hell, show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which streams live on Thursdays at 10 a.m. Chicago time and is podcast shortly after. Patreon.com slash this is hell. Or you can uh, show your support of completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting our website, thisishell.com, and clicking on support. When you do become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon, not only do you get a special code word giving you a discount on all of our merchandise that you can find right now at thisishell.com when you click on support, but you also get access to over 350 past Patreon podcasts. It's like a couple more years of This Is Hell for just becoming a subscriber on Patreon. With each and every one of those podcasts, every one of them featuring a monologue by me and a classic interview with a past guest that currently is not available anywhere else online. On last week's Patreon podcast, we lamented the slow and painful death of imagination. From the time we are children, our imagination is slowly and perniciously under attack to the point that we no longer have the creativity necessary to imagine that, yes, another world is possible and there is a way we can live without capitalism, that an alternative can be dreamed of, let alone achieved. So last week's Patreon monologue was all about how and why our imagination is limited, is stunted, left to stagnate and die, and who and what is killing our dreams. Also on Patreon, we were saddened by the passing of academic, writer, truck driver, meat cutter, Mike Davis, author of the classic City of Quartz and Planet of Slums. Mike appeared on our show several times, and you can now find all of our conversations with him only on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. All of the interviews we did with Mike are now at patreon.com slash thisishell. 
So we shared the final one that we had not shared on Patreon yet, our 2006 interview with Mike when he was on to discuss his then-just-published book, Planet of Slums. His publisher, Verso, writes that in Planet of Slums, Mike Davis explores the future of a radically unequal and explosively unstable urban world. So you can only find that. Only can find out what has killed our imagination and learn from the late, great Mike Davis about our planet of slums by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Sebastian, please remind us, what is this week's question from Helen? Tell us how our listeners are responding so far. Uh, this week's question from Hell is, now that Elon Musk has, twil- has killed Twitter... <coughs> <coughs> That's quite a drop you have there for that boo. That's very nice. Oh, yeah. Uh, how are you wasting your time instead... Uh, Adam Agos, Adam A, yes. excuse me, uh, writes on Facebook, You know, I originally signed up for Twitter just so that I could enter some online contest. I didn't win, and that was many years ago, and I haven't really interacted with it since. So is this a question of how I am using my 0.00001 minutes of co- uh, comparative time online? Would you like me to answer again? Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, if you don't use Twitter in the way that I do, like, I use Twitter extensively. I have made a lot of good friendships through Twitter. Like, the person who uh, did a reading at my wedding is somebody I met through Twitter. So, no kidding. Yeah, so uh, this this person I have words for only that that I can't really say on this show um, just coming in there and just ruining it ruining it for everyone uh, makes me pretty mad um, so so let's move on from Adam's response yes uh, SLS writes making small talk with a demon on my butt <laughs> and uh, what Chich R says uh, revisiting my GeoCities page and that's what, all we have for right now yep that's all we have. Uh, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins their choice of whatever this is hell swag they want you can see all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support we'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell later this week and now the triumphant return of the past inside the present when producer Sebastian Vupper, who holds a Ph.D. in history, provides us with the past historical context necessary to better understand the present hellscape within which we find ourselves today. Sebastian. The past inside the present. So this week is kind of, uh, well, it's an important week in the year for Germans, for Germany, because November 9 is coming up. And uh, November 9 is kind of an awkward date for Germans. Uh, The day is somehow one where across the 20th century, things of historical importance for the country as a whole happened again and again. Uh, In 1918, it was the day the German Empire and the Weimar Republic began after World War I, so ostensibly a positive date. And depending on who you're, I mean, depending on who you're asking, obviously. Um, Another ostensibly positive thing happened on November 9, 1989, when the Berlin Wall fell. Um, Or more precisely, when the East German uh, Communist government allowed East Germans to cross over into the West and return back to the East without consequences, signaling the beginning of the end. But the real problem, uh, the swastika-shaped fly in the ointment here, is November 9 and 1938. 
Pogrom Night, the night the Nazis prompted their goons and their fans and the German population to smash and torch Jewish places of worship and Jewish-run businesses across the country. So, now when the anniversaries of the fall of the wall were commemorated in recent years, German-Jewish organizations were generally quick to publicly remind everyone, not so fast, cool things that, that the wall came... I mean, it's a cool thing that the wall came down, sure, but maybe cool it a little, because there's something else that must be remembered here as well. And for me, living in the US now, there's another wrinkle to it, because when the American press publishes articles and editorials memorializing the horrible events that took place in Nazi Germany on November 9, 1938, my own German sensibilities start bristling. Because it is a recurring reminder that not everyone around the world has gone through denazification to the degree that, you know, Germany has. And that not everyone around the world outside of Germany is aware of what the Nazis were like. Uh, which is understandable, uh, but also a reason for me to year after year remind people that, you know, words have power, words have meaning, and there are some words that simply shouldn't be used because of those reasons. Uh, so the wide-ranging state-sanctioned violence that was spread by the Nazi party throughout the German Reich on uh, the night of November 9, 1938, was one of the worst pogroms against German Jews in centuries. When, when the smoke from the burning Jewish uh, shops and Jewish houses of worship cleared, uh, 400 Germans of Jewish descent were dead. About 30,000 Jews were then rounded up in the following days and deported to concentration camps under the excuse of putting them in quote-unquote protective custody because the Nazis were nothing if not murderously cynical about all of this. Um, and almost every single synagogue in Germany was was destroyed that night, along with more than 7,200 shops and residences. And these pogroms were initiated by members of the SA and SS, uh, the Nazi paramilitary forces, who dressed up as civilians in an effort to incite widespread violence by the German populace against their Jewish compatriots. The events initially did not have an official name. The Nazis uh, themselves referred to it basically just as another night of long knives, another purge of the German body politic of enemies of the movement. It was in Berlin, a city notorious for its anarchic, cynical, and proletarian uh, diction today still, where citizens coined the term Kristallnacht uh, on the streets. Citizens that were opposing the regime. However, the bitter oppositional cynicism of anonymous Berliners was no match for the cruel, malignant, and utter inhumane cynicism of the Nazis, who quickly co-opted the term and began to use it to refer to the events of November 9 ever since. So, Kristallnacht, or Reichskristallnacht, uh, yeah, I, I don't want any American to try pronouncing Reichskristallnacht, that, that's not gonna <laughs> work pretty well. Anyway, originally, so these terms originally meant to lampoon Nazi nomenclature, uh, that added the prefix Reichs to many terms to indicate the claim of the party to these words. And, uh, well, and then they became the official expression for the pogroms that were a large part of the effort of excising Jewish elements from the German general populace. And the, the cynicism inherent in the term that Kristallnacht in the Nazi co-option of the word describes... Um, is that that it means something positive, right? So, something wonderful. 
Because in this view, uh, Kristallnacht describes the myriads of shards of glass from smashed windows of Jewish-owned shops and houses of prayer lying strewn across the streets of Germany, glistening in the flames of burning synagogues, where that and basically saying that those are a thing of beauty, a sign of the long-desired change that would rid Germany of its insidious arch-enemy, the Jews, shining like wondrous crystals. Crystals and diamonds for the celebration of destroying the Jewish influence in the midst of the German folk. It is an expression that illustrates the abject cynicism of the Nazis uh, that is inherent in that was inherent in so many of their actions, and it, it was rivaled only by the motivational sayings immortalized in uh, the iron gates of the concentration and extermination camps. Arbeit macht frei, and so forth. You're hopefully familiar with those. You know, work shall set you free. Um, and while the term Kristallnacht is uh, still in use colloquially in Germany today, it is not a turn of phrase that is used either likely or uncritically by most people. Most German scholars will avoid it, lest they unwittingly reproduce the cynicism and belittlement of the victims of uh, their regime that the Nazis practiced, and the alternatives used instead are pogromnacht, uh, pogrom night, or simply the November pogrome, the November pogroms. If scholars use the term, it is usually put in quotation marks and often prefixed by a so-called to make sure that any and all readers or listeners understand the distance the author or speaker is putting between themselves and this quite loaded term. This approach, however, is unique to Germany. Outside the country, Kristallnacht is still used in everyday journalistic and even academic parlance alike when referring to the events of November 9, 1938. And this presents German scholars operating in an international environment like me with a conundrum. It is a term that is generally accepted to describe the events, however only few people growing up outside of post-war Germany are aware of the word's origins and of the more subtle, cynical implications that the term is loaded with. So, while it seems unlikely that non-German scholars, writers, journalists, and historians would give up using the term, this makes it even more imperative to raise awareness of its origins, usage, and deeper meanings. By using terms groups like the Nazis coined, co-opted, and perpetuated uncritically, without pointing out their deeper implications, or at least distancing ourselves from them when we use them, we unwittingly perpetuate Nazi propaganda. But, as we say in Germany today, kein Fußbreit im Faschismus, uh, we do not cede an inch, to the, uh, inch of ground to fascism. Words and terms have meanings that we cannot and must not ignore, especially when it comes to fascism and Nazism. Uh, those ideologies were buried on the graveyard of ideas where they belong. Well, and now they just seem to be clawing their way back like a zombie in a cheap movie, but that's another story for another time. And it is our duty to ensure that they stay there and that we do not allow any bit of their corrosive influence to seep back out. Kein Fußbreit im Faschismus, not in deeds, not in thoughts, not in words, especially in a world today where anti-Semitism and fascism are again on the rise. I thought we talked about this. Um, this is not a purity thing either. The term was this. This was a term that the Nazis adopted specifically to belittle their own victims of state-sanctioned violence. Therefore, it should absolutely not be used any longer uncritically. 
And of course, there is also the issue that that is that it is a German word, and using a German word in a language that is not German makes uh, this all a little less salient. But still, we, must we keep using this term when we can use terms that are just as accurately describe this event that were not used by the perpetrators to belittle their victims? And uh, yeah, now we get back into the present. Thank you for listening. So what should it be called? Uh pogrom night november pogroms no that's, that's that sounds a lot yeah, better yeah hmm. no that's uh, because you know what's that way we're not you know just keep using nazi terms for things yeah it's probably a good idea uh we also got an email from rob h who was kind enough to send me an office chair after i complained on air about my chronic back pain and how my uncomfortable office chair was making the problem worse rob contacted us about our recent interview with C.D. Davidson Hires and Jeff Vandermeer, who co-wrote the Nation article that was suggested by Sebastian to be on the show, uh, to be discussed on the show. Yeah, is of course you have Jeff Vandermeer on when when I'm not there. <laughs> I'm, I'm a huge fan of his of his of his fiction books. So. See, apparently everybody is. Uh, let, let me uh, read uh, what Rob had to say here. This is pretty intense. Uh, so. Uh, they they were on the show, CD and Jeff were on the show to discuss their nation article is Florida becoming a failed state. And Rob writes, Hi Chuck, I love that interview with CD and Jeff on the October 24th show. Your questions were awesome and I enjoyed how much CD was appreciating and responding to them. I just listened to it on Saturday, which was the 10 year anniversary of Superstorm Sandy destroying my family's home and 80% of our New Jersey town. The experience discussing insurance uh, reimbursement and what exactly caused the damage, flooding or wind, as a BS wave for insurance companies to dodge covering and reimbursing what happened was very relatable. We dealt with the same issue, and I think my father was ready to end up in jail over it. They severely underpaid us, and the only thing that saved us was the Robin Hood Foundation charity that did the 121212 benefit concert at Madison Square Garden. Otherwise, my family would have had to demolish what was left of our home and sell the property and move somewhere they could afford. Coincidentally enough, they've since retired and moved to the west coast of Florida. But fortunately, they're far enough inland to not be at risk of flooding, knock on wood, or any damage beyond falling trees or debris. My father's former co-worker wasn't so lucky. He received significant damage in Sandy, retired to the Fort Myers area, and then lost his home entirely with Hurricane Ian, which honestly he should have seen coming when moving to that area in the first place. Beyond all of that, I thought it was so cool that Jeff Vandermeer was a guest. I had no idea he does writing beyond his novels. It was wild to me because your podcast and guests got me back into reading, and Jeff's book Annihilation and the rest of the Southern Reach trilogy is what got me back into reading fiction. Never thought there'd be this crossover, especially about a topic relevant to me, on the anniversary of my experience. Keep up the great work, Rob. Thanks, Rob, for everything. And CD and Jeff both apparently agree with you about the interview and how much they enjoyed it because they posted on so social media uh, how much fun they had during our conversation as well. And I just got to ask you, Sebastian, did you suggest these guests because of Jeff Vandermeer's writing or was it because of the article? Um, his, little, his fiction writing. A little bit of both. I was just like, well, it might be nice to have uh, somebody on here who's kind of a bit out of a left field for uh, for for our preferences in terms yeah. of um, you know people that that we get on. And then also just the article was pretty salient and just 
you know, topical because Florida is becoming a failed state. I mean, yeah, it's kind of, kind it's, of going on. It's right? just a reminder to me how little fiction I've read over the last 26 years. Because of the radio show. I yeah, just don't I mean, have time to read fiction. I mean, you you, you read, like, a lot of other stuff yeah. all the time. Yeah. So, so I shouldn't feel guilty? I, I don't... I mean, not really. I mean, there's a pretty good movie uh, made out of it uh, that is... Made from Annihilation? Yeah. Also called Annihilation. Okay. Um... But the movie has, is kind of going into a slightly different direction. I mean, it's it's and anyway that 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 goes too far. So, Sebastian, who is coming up as our next guest here on This Is Hell? Uh, tomorrow we have civil rights lawyer and former public defender Alex Karen Sakis, who is the founder and executive director of the Civil Rights Corps. We will be speaking with Alec about his latest writing, a warning to journalists about elite academia. Two Harvard professors proposed the greatest expansion of the police bureaucracy in Western history, uh, which you can find posted at Alex's propaganda newsletter at equalityalec.substack.com. Thanks to Carolyn S. for suggesting Alec as a guest. And who was going to be our final guest this week. Our final guest of this week's show will be another political science scholar, Nojang Katami, who is a postdoctoral fellow at the Justitia Center for Advanced Studies at Goethe University of Frankfurt. Beginning in the fall of 2023, he will be assistant professor of political science at Fordham University Nojang will be on the talk uh, about his Boston Review article, The Lifeblood of Iranian Democracy, from street demonstrations to song, dance, film, and poetry. Women are advancing a long legacy of struggle against authoritarianism in Iran. Also coming up later this week, we'll share this week in Rotten History. We'll reveal what is happening on this week's Patreon podcast, which... It has a lot to do with our guest today, Liliana Mason, and her writing. Uh, that streams live on Thursday and is podcast at or streams live on Thursday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. This podcast shortly after at the same place, patreon.com slash this is hell. We will hear another moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin and we'll wrap up the way we do every week by announcing the winner of this week's question from hell, who will win their choice of this is hell merchandise. You can see all of our stuff right now by going to this is hell.com and clicking on support. And uh, then we might even be re- revealing next week's guests as well, because I'm already working on that. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Sebastian Vopper for producing. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>